Hello, may I welcome you to episode 73 of Moving Matters. I am your host, Colin Wynn. I hope Moving Matters will give you an insight to others working or have worked in this wonderful industry as I delve into their past, their present and their future. You will find a new episode of Moving Matters on the second and fourth Thursday of each month. In this episode, we discover how my guest cut his cloth within the industry at the tender age of 14, delivering mahogany furniture on a Saturday for his father's sideline. We discuss his challenges, what he would change from his moving past, his high points, what changes he would make to the industry, the advice he would give starting out again, his predictions for the next five years, and what he does outside of the workplace. And as always, we end moving matters with a funny moving story regarding a survey. My guest this episode is Matt Fazy, Managing Director of M&G Movers and Storers. Now a fired up Matt Fazy has a lot to say about our industry over the next 90 minutes, so be prepared for more than one coffee during this episode. Enjoy. morning matt welcome to moving matters how are you this morning well as i think we already know that i'm now very fired up thank you colin (laughs) extremely fired up (laughs) extremely fired up should we tell everybody what you're fired up about before we ask the questions oh yeah colin's been winding you know winding me up about this whole three and a half ton low loader bullshit (laughs) argument (laughs) go on give us your views on it matt well, as we were, just, it's it's this whole you know low loader versus HGV. It's it is it's it's old men shouting at clouds and and youngsters looking at the old men trying to work out what on earth they're doing. And you know, if you have a proper business model in this industry, which I, again I'm sure we'll come on to, um, if you have any measure of financial understanding, you, you'll and have a proper model put together, you'll realise that the vast majority of your costs are on the employees. So how there should be a measure of or any worrying about undercutting by those operating low loaders, I think is to completely miss the point. Uh, I, I really don't get why this is such an issue. I remember it being discussed at previous Movers and Sora shows. and I've always stood there thinking, hang on a minute, we are employed to move customers' possessions from A to B. The medium that we use is secondary to the quality of the service anyway. If you have an argument on chassis weight and overloading, that's completely separate. And at the end of the day, any operator of HDVs who has an issue with this, the last time I checked, there were numerous mediums for selling those HGVs and going out and buying those low loaders, which they speak so vociferously against. So I don't particularly see there's a problem. It's a non-subject for me. And likewise, if those operating the low loaders operate the type of business model that generates them the profits that they can have the choice, then fine, they can go off and get their own license and they can go off and purchase whichever bloody vehicles they want. But if you compare the carrying capacities and the costs to run, you know, if we take a couple of low loaders at seven to 800 cubic feet a pop versus, I'll pick a vehicle from my own fleet, you know, a, a 15 ton with a 1800 cubic foot body in the real world, if you send that, I don't know, down to Cornwall, you can either run one vehicle at 13 mile per gallon or two vehicles at 26 each. It's the same fuel cost. 
Uh, the annual running costs are, are different, but if you run your HGVs responsibly, you're on 12 weekly inspections anyway. The overall cost to run two low loaders versus one well-maintained HGV, they're not that much difference until you get to insurance. But all of these costs pale into insignificance to the overall running cost of a business and its workforce and its employee base. So again, for me, we have a model, and I'm not going to get too far into my business model. But if I, if we provide a quotation for a move, I don't know, down to Butte in Cornwall, if we choose to send two low loaders or one HGV, does it matter? No. Does it change the cost for the client? No. Does it give us a huge amount of flexibility? Yes. Is this a conversation that's worthy of breath? No. That's my point. <laughs> so you're not up for regulation then, Matt, basically? Regulation of what? <laughs> the vehicles or the industry? The three and a half ton brigade, as they call it. Well, I've, I wouldn't be so ignorantly disparaging in my terms, frankly, because <laughs> I've seen an awful lot of so-called professional moving companies with HGVs who I wouldn't let take my rubbish out. And I've seen operators of three and a half ton vehicles who I would quite happily employ myself. Yeah. I am way more concerned with the skill, the integrity and the professionalism of the individuals who are going to be moving my possessions and loading that vehicle than I am anything else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And frankly, I think it's a diversionary tactic anyway, because I think the employment practices and professionalism of the industry is far more worthy of any conversation than the type of vehicles that are being used. Obviously, notwithstanding one particular mover I can think of who has a bloody flatbed and a curtain cider, but that's another story. <laughs> there's, there's, there's far more that needs discussing our industry than the type of vehicles we're using. This is very true. This is very true. Well, now that we've calmed down a little bit, can you tell everybody about yourself and the length of time within the industry? My length of time in the industry, I'm... Well, who are you first, Matt? We, we only know that you're Matt. <laughs> yeah, I'm Matt Fazy. Um, I've previously been very well known in the industry, not so much anymore. And yeah, I run a company in the Midlands. I'm not going to bother telling you how many employees and how many vans I run because that's a dumbass question. I'll simply tell you that we turn over between 1 and 1.3 million a year. We have around about 400-ish thousand of that coming in on storage and the rest on domestic moving. And how long have you been in the industry? I started delivering mahogany furniture, well, mahogany and new furniture on a Saturday morning when I was about 14 years old. For somebody else or for yourself? So my father was a fireman who ran a fiddle, as they all did then. And his fiddle was to run a couple of vans, moving pretty much anything. And one of the things he did was on a Saturday morning for Sterry's Warehouse, it would be delivering mahogany and new furniture, just the old traditional furniture deliveries to customers who bought it. And that's where I cut my teeth in the industry. Although the intention was never to become a removal man. That wasn't what I was supposed to do. So what was you supposed to do? I'm curious. Um, the target was barrister or journalist. Oh, wow. That's quite, that's quite a difference to a removal man. Yeah, just a bit. <laughs> so can you tell everybody about your company and the services it offers? You're not going to well, tell us how many trucks you run and staff that you employ, but obviously 1.3 million turnover. 
No, I've never understood people answering in that way. It doesn't mean a fat lot. No, but just curiosity. So the company I run is fairly unique in some respects. We are, I think, the only VAR member that crosses out any right to subcontract any work out whatsoever. We do not choose to interact with any other firms. We don't ever bring in outsiders. We have no employee on less than a full 40-hour-a-week annual basis. We don't top up. My contracts do not give me the right to drop people's days or hours. And that's probably one of the most key things about us. We run absolutely what I would call properly. I see the posts on Facebook, you know, anybody got a porter available in Bristol? Frankly, I wouldn't insult my customers that way. Yeah, yeah. I get that. I totally get that. So literally, the goods are loaded by your guys and are delivered by your guys and nobody else. Absolutely nobody else, no. Not ever. We've never we've never dropped that particular ball. It is us and only us. And you do self-storage as well, don't you? Yeah, we've got um, 28,500 square foot building uh, on a one-acre site, but we've also got commercial premises that we rent out elsewhere. And... Yeah, it's um, it's kitted out as self-storage, but the second floor of the building um, is used for our own domestic moving activities. Cool. So you said earlier that you've been out of the industry for a few years. May I ask why? Yeah, I um, a lot of my early involvement was... I was quite angry overall for a number of reasons and wanted to make a change and wanted to make a difference. So Angry with what, though, Matt? The industry? Uh, yeah, the industry, but that's not where it was born from. It was born from events in my life. But I, I did feel that somewhat arrogantly, I think, not necessarily untruthfully, but certainly arrogantly, I felt like I had a view on the industry that, and a level of education in the industry that, was fairly unmatched for the age I was at. So did attempt to make a difference because that culminated in ending up on the board of directors of the BAR and uh, a very heavy involvement in the Movers and Sora show and the creating of the, the Packer of the Year competition and other stuff like that and you know writing an open letter to conveyancers and campaigning very, very heavily on that topic, which I think ultimately is what got me on the HSBG group and was the first person in the industry on that group. But the truth of it is that you can expend so much energy. And it also came to a point that business-wise, we were at a, a massive, massive moment where we got leases expiring on premises. And I'd taken the decision that it was time to either build proper wealth or stop for good. So I elected to go down the route of attempting to build some proper wealth for myself and my family. Yeah, yeah. And if you're going to devote yourself wholesale to that, ironically, it was at the neglect of my wife. If you're going to go down that route, you don't have time for a fat lot else. And also, our industry is old, bold, and white, I'm afraid. And unfortunately, a lot of the individuals who are able to put themselves in positions of influence are 
in a financial position and a company size position that they're able to do so. And a lot of the youngsters who I believe are doing fantastic work now are fortunate in that they're in companies that can then physically and financially afford them the time to be doing these things. But 10 to 15 years ago, that was a lot less the case. And it was the case that a lot of individuals who all thought the same way, wanted the same things, had certainly an element of protectionism about their own activities, were very heavily influencing, certainly, in my opinion, the BAR, which I don't have a bad word to say about now. And, and I didn't fit in. I didn't fit in. I was a complete outsider. And I didn't like it. And then you take other events, you know, like Scott Rust with his creation of AIM, and, and even some of the work that much maligned and Mickey taken out of Jane Finch was doing. You know, there were some really good individuals around at the time with some really great ideas. And I always found it very frustrating that a lot of the time, and I was probably guilty of it myself, and I'm guilty of it myself, it was easier to ta- attack the individual than what they were trying to do. But a lot of what yeah. was trying to be, to be done in between the years of 2009 and 2015 were really good stuff. Really good stuff. And unfortunately, it never flew. Maybe maybe it will now. I don't know. Do you fancy getting back on any of the boards and trying again? Um, I don't know, if I'm honest. My life is pretty full. Do you have the time? Well, this is it. My life's pretty full. I'm in the... I'm in the very fortunate position now where I work with some wonderful individuals who, quite frankly, would prefer probably that I wasn't around <laughs> anywhere near as much as I was. But the truth is that I, deep down, love what we do. Yeah. And I do have other business interests. And the company now has things like investment portfolios and other commercial property. and. And then with the racing as well, and with two young children, life is pretty full. I don't know. I've always thought that, um, you know, if I stay in this industry much longer, then before I'm too old, bold, and white, I probably should (laughs) try and give something back. I don't know. We'll see. Well, I think you should, personally. You're controversial. You believe in what you say. (laughs) So get in there. Get on those boards. Come on, make a change, Matt. You've gone missing for four years. Come back. Oh, it's a bit longer than that, I think, mate. But, um, but yeah, you know, we'll, we'll see. I, st- I still have the odd occasional exchanges with my industry surrogate father, Ian Studd. Uh, hi, Ian. <laughs> I, I, I do give him shit on quite a lot of occasions. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, apart from that, you know, you'll still find me turning up at the Movers and Storers show and having a quick look around. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I came close to wanting to buy that show off uh, off Charlotte and Keith. And uh, Charlotte and Keith, if you're listening, I regret not doing that. Why would you want to buy that? Um, because some of the energy that that pair put into the industry, and I have got nothing but admiration for Keith and Charlotte. Oh, absolutely what they were prepared to bring and some of the 
some of the energy at that show, especially, I think back to, <laughs> I think back to when my team and and I don't include myself in that. My team were doing it at Silverstone, and I love the Silverstone ones. Yeah, the um the energy that was in that, you know, you got the impression that it was the springboard for what I think our industry is distinctly lacking, yeah. which is a cohesive sense of we are one. Which is something I've criticised the BAR for also not developing. And I think the Moves and Stories show would have been a great springboard to really get to to get to a point. This is not criticism that it never happened under Keith and Charlotte. But when you look at things like Estate Agency Today and Property Industry Eye, you know, those and the way they send out their emails every morning with industry news industry interviews reporting on what's happening giving the data and it baffles me that we don't do that it i i cannot fathom that no matter what your political standpoint on the size of companies and the integrity of companies that ultimately when from the shit to the excellent we're all doing the same thing yeah and ultimately, we should have our customers at heart and front and foremost. And I just, I just can't understand why there aren't attempts to bring everybody in under one umbrella. It doesn't stop there being factions, but it might give more of a voice. And yeah. if we can upskill in terms of intellect the bottom end, as well as have the the higher end of the industry have more empathy towards the lower end. I fail to see how the outcome can't be anything other than better for the consumer. Yeah. And without the consumer, we're all fucked. So this is true. So I, again, I've I've never fathomed it. And when you you know you look at the, the that that side of it with the agents and conveyances. Yeah, sure. Most of them hate each other. Most of them are critical of each other. They have their own factions, you know, especially in on the on the law side, you know, with the law society and the Convey Association and the CLC and the SLC. And I've been unfortunate enough to witness how they smile at each other at parties and stab each other in the back when they're outside. But and our industry will be the same. But right now we have no voice. No voice. And that's not a criticism of the BAR. The BAR provides a voice for the BAR. But he's not open enough, I don't think. And I don't think our industry is anywhere near cohesive enough. We deserve it and the clients deserve it. So the Movers and Storers show is a way of bringing everybody together. doesn't make any difference whether you're a bar member, an A member, a Move Assured member, not even a member of any group. It just brings the whole industry together. Well, it does. But there's an awful lot of psychology that, that has previously been employed into the uh, layout and events format of that show. And the physical layout and the events format can have a drastic effect on on the end result in that regard. Yeah. From what I've witnessed in recent years, it's only a personal opinion. I think that the format can have more psychology into it as well as the physical layout. And I think there can be better results. As well as Keith and Charlotte were making, in the end of their tenure, they were making massive use and trying to make massive use 
of the discussions they were trying to generate by email, uh, which would then lead into the forums in the show. And and God, I applaud them for it. And and again, I think it was I think it was the first couple of steps on a long road that would have been really good for the industry. But I support the show, hundred and ten percent. So, what challenges have you had to overcome, then, Matt? How personal would you like me to get, Colin? Well, we don't need to go too personal. But... <laughs> <laughs> I suppose. I suppose. I mean, I, I'll preface all of it with: I've been very lucky to have had the support of my extremely suffering other half, Donna. <laughs> who many many people listen to this? If there are many people that listen to this, will know. But um, I I walked out of sixth form college and kind of landed it on my father that I wanted to be a removal man. The truth of why I walked out was I was sat in a politics class and it was, what, 1995? As new labour were all the rage. And um, I sat in this class and the, and the whole class was asked, who are you going to vote for? And uh, Everybody but me held their hands up for that smiling Muppet Blair. And um, at that point, I sort of looked around and thought, these are my peers and these are the people I'm going to have to compete against in life. And clearly, I'm not one of them. So I asked to go to the toilet, walked out and walked straight out the gates and onto a house move. I actually walked to where my father had got a house move that day and joined him. And then a few years later, my father, who by this point had started his descent into alcoholism, decided he had to try and build something for the future. And for all his wonderful, wonderful traits and what a wonderful guy he was, he had absolutely no business sense. And he took a lease on a very large, dilapidated and horrific premises and decided to turn it into a storage facility. And I can still remember on day one, everybody looking at each other and going, well, how the hell do we do this? (laughs) And it was all a bit of fun. Yeah, the first five, seven years, it it was just all a bit of fun and another lease had been taken on another huge premises and it all sort of happened. And then in 2005, he was diagnosed with cancer and it was terminal. I was an extremely immature 26 or 27-year-old. And by that point, the businesses were not making any money whatsoever. and were very heavily in debt, and I don't mind giving the numbers out in a bit. So I suddenly found myself at the end of 2005, and all of a sudden it was a case of the CPC holder is about to die. Yeah. And now he's in a hospital in Moseley, going from ultimately 16 and a half stone down to seven stone. And I'd never had any need to go out and do quotes. I'd never had any need to learn how to run a business, to be quite honest, because much like many firms, you just go out and quote what other people are quoting roughly, and that's all he ever did. And and we kind of made it work. And, you know, you're you're drawing on your pool of labor as it was then. And and it's all a bit of a giggle. And you're going out after work and getting absolutely spanned in the pub. And and it's all about the alcohol and it's all about having a laugh. And, um, And then all of a sudden it wasn't. And I had to suddenly find myself in a suit turning up at people's homes and I'd, I'd i'd more than done the physical education i mean before that i'd been performing moves across spain france portugal i'd i was 
on the phones from when I was 14 years old for him. And I'd already started commenting on the completion process and, and getting educated. But in terms of running a business, I'd got a clue. So I suddenly had to step in and suddenly started to go out to houses. And there was no staff and no employee support behind me because I'd been the person in the office. So my girlfriend at the time, Donna, suddenly said, I'll come in the office. And, um, and then it gets a bit of a blur. I mean, suddenly I'm doing, doing quotes every day and, and trying to run this business. And it, it sort of dawned on me that we'd got a storage company that was 40 grand into its overdraft and another storage company that was 20 grand into its overdraft with a 20,000 pound loan. And, and then we got another limited company that was the, the house moving company. And, and that was 10 grand into a 10 grand overdraft. And, and I think had a loan of about 12. And the total assets of the company must have come to all of about 6,000 quid. Oh, my word. So I, I knew I was kind of up against it, but you always tend to think that it'll kind of come good. And, and it didn't really. I was doing quotes and going to see my father who was dying and having to sit at his bedside and have the EOS notes, that huge four-inch thick tome as it was then for your national CPC. And I used to have to study at his bedside while he was dying for my CPC. And also the international, which was about an inch and a half thick then as well. So he took five months ultimately to, to die. And my time was not spent with him, which I regret. My time was spent studying for my CPC and trying to keep this business going that, that I had no idea how much of a crap shit show it was. Um, my mother, who at that point, officially, she ran the other storage facility. But she had no business training, not her fault. She was only ever, she was a legal secretary before that. And she suddenly went to live with him in the hospital for, th for his last three months. So it really did land on me. Um, and, and to be fair, by extension, the suffering I put Donna through because it was horrific pressure for me. And then throughout the preceding three or four years when my father was drinking extremely heavily, I hadn't realized in my absolute naivety that I was a personal guarantor on the leases that we had, Oof. which had no break clauses in. Uh, one of them ran to 2016, one of them ran to 2017, and, and the combined liabilities of those were about 2.2 million. And the businesses were absolutely shite. And also, I didn't know that I was on his credit cards as well, which he'd been using to buy cigars and alcohol. And then to cap it all off, we found out he'd cancelled his life insurance. Oh. So it left me with an uphill task, shall we say. And then I haven't mentioned that from the age of 23, I'd been suffering with repeated uh, polynoidal sinus. I advise people not to Google that. It's not very pleasant. But by that point, I'd had three or four operations for that. And then, yeah, so he died in March 2006. And at some point in the next four weeks, sat down at my desk and um, no idea why I did this. And I just calculated. Originally, I was going to calculate down to the day how much it cost to run the company. But I got a little bit obsessive and I calculated it all the way down to the minute. And then got even more in depth and, and just started calculating everything. Everything went down to the minute. I mean, I calculated how much every vehicle cost to run. I calculated 
all, all the utilities. I calculated material. I literally calculated our usage of absolutely everything, literally down to the minute. And then started going backwards the other way and saying, okay, well, you know, how, how do you calculate profit? I mean, how, how do you calculate how you're supposed to do this? And um, I just kind of said to myself, well, you're already broke. You literally have no prospects here. Uh, at the time, Donna and I lived in a house and um, our combined assets probably came to no more, you know, including the equity in the house to about 40 grand. And I just thought, you know what? I don't have a choice here. I have to start making money very quickly. And just decided, you know what? I'm going to put the numbers on, on paper for what we have to charge. And if it works, it works. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. And that led on to starting to, to work out how you could deal and talk to customers in such a fashion that it would be successful. And Years earlier, I had a, a fascination with neurolinguistics and in, even into self-hypnosis and all sorts of weird and wonderful stuff and suddenly found that might be a help when you're 27 and you haven't got a barking clue what you're doing, really, <laughs> in terms of selling to customers. So, you know, the first, the first few months of doing it were extremely rough. I was also extremely conscious that since 2004, we'd been singing to everybody and I knew that the wheels were going to fall off this housing market. And then I got a lucky break in, in December where I had um, a very clear and present warning that it, it, it had arrived. And um, it enabled us to plan a slight bit earlier. But of course, 2007, eight and the first half of 2009 were beyond horrific. And I'd had to take mortgage payment breaks. And I, don't, I, don't, I don't need a, a small violin for this. I'm not, that's not why I'm saying it. It's just that you asked me what my background was. So and so we, we kind of scraped through. And when I say scraped, we well, wouldn't even turn the lights on in the storage facility on some days. You couldn't have the lights on because you couldn't afford the electric. So, and then pretty much at, at the point that we were actually about to go bust, the market did turn in the second half of 2009. And um, we had this six months of glorious trading. Yeah, we still had these old crappy vehicles and, and stuff like that, but, but it gave us a boost. And I think the truth of it was that by the time we got to 2010, if you've been left in a hole that big and then gone into recession, once you have a strategy that has been, you've been forced to develop to get yourself out of a hole that big, as long as you keep going, <laughs> yeah. you're kind of always going to do okay. And that's, that's why I operate an absolutely ruthless business model today with what we do. You know, I haven't mentioned that in 2000, well, when I was 20, 28, sorry, about a year and a half after my father died, I found I'd got an extremely horrendous back injury. That left me crippled for the first 10 years up till I was about 36. I almost committed suicide at 34. Uh, I existed on those 10 years on, on a cocktail of uh, at the beginning, it was cocodamol, diclofenac, and diazepam. So I was actually developing the business and running the business while completely stoned off my head on painkillers and, and other stuff. But yeah, I mean, I, I got up one morning at 28, went into the shower and um, turned around for the shower gel. 
and my legs went out from underneath me and I caught the sink on the way down, which stopped my head landing in the toilet, thankfully, because that would have been extreme. It's bad enough being naked and unable to walk, let alone if your head had landed in the toilet. So, yeah, it was it was rough, and the attacks would leave me unable to walk or do much for anywhere from four days to two weeks at a time. And, yeah, that went on for about 10 years. Wow. And it got to the point by the time I was in my mid-30s that I was um, putting tramadol diazepam diclofenac into either rum or whiskey and and using that to kill the pain i watched a lot of films but yeah i was trying to i was trying to run a business through that and um i met a customer a couple of years ago who'd moved a, a lot during the recession and uh, and since and uh she looked at me and she said so that kind of i don't understand that there's something very different about you. you you suddenly seem forgive me for saying this but you seem a lot more intelligent than i've previously known I'm sure there's a few people listening to this who know me. <laughs> and I sort of said to her, I said, yeah, I said, the problem is you've never seen me sober. And she said, what do you mean by that? I said, well, every appointment you've ever had with me, I have been absolutely stoned on painkillers, anti-inflammatories and diazepam. And she was kind of like, you, you know, surely you're not telling the truth. I was like, yeah, yeah. I was taking two 3,500 cocodamol four times a day while doing up to eight or nine quotations a day and driving between each one and, and running the business at the same time. So what happened after the 10 years? Oh, well, I haven't even told you about my mother yet. I, I, did, I did warn you, Colin, that if I wrote my life into a book, <laughs> no one would believe it. Yeah, my mother, after she'd spent those three months with my father, it sent her completely over the edge. And I mean completely over the edge. And we had three years from 2010 where she was very unstable you know, psychologically. It culminated in her having an absolutely huge stroke in 2010, but she had a series of strokes and fin she finally passed away in 2013. And um, we were acting as carers for her for the three years as well. My sister was also involved in that. My sister, before she turned into an absolute bitch, <laughs> was very good during that period. And, uh, yeah, so we, we went straight off the back of my father into having to manage my mother's psycho, you know, psychological state. And ultimately, her decline was pretty horrendous as well. But to give you an idea, my mother died at eight minutes to seven on a Saturday morning. And at half past seven, I was on site for Paragon uh, managing a commercial relocation, which took nine hours that day. Incredible. My father died at uh, 10 to 3 in the morning, and I was in work at 6. And I did all my quotations that day. There's more to life than work, though, Matt. There fucking is, you're right. And it's taken a long time to learn that. But there wasn't then. There wasn't. You know, you, when, you, when you have personal guarantees on that, I mean, I couldn't, yeah. I couldn't yeah. marry my girlfriend because of these personal guarantees. You know, we, we had to wait. Well, she had, no, not we. <laughs> Who am I kidding? She had to wait <laughs> 15 years for me to propose. Uh, and to anybody listening who just thought I was being an arsehole, <laughs> and I'm not saying I wasn't an arsehole because I was, she had to wait. And I couldn't marry her because of the personal guarantees that I'd given on these leases. Yeah. You know, it was horrible. And yeah, so I did, I did, and there's probably, there's probably an awful lot of stuff I've, I've forgotten, Colin, but I did warn you that if you wrote my life up into a book, <laughs> people wouldn't believe it. 
So with all that, what would you change when you're moving past? Flipping heck. Um, what would I change? Oh, God. Um, I'd probably have never done it in the first place. Really? Yeah. That said, if I hadn't have done it, I'd never have met my wife. Uh, if I'd never have done it, I'd never have all the experiences that you get in this industry yeah. and the knowledge. But yeah, I, I honestly, I don't know how to answer that one. I think, I think probably I'd have wanted to have got a lot better educated a lot sooner and not treated it like such a, a joke and a laugh in the early years. But you know what? Hindsight's a wonderful thing. Oh, absolutely. And with the benefit of hindsight, you know, we're all multi-billionaires, you know, riding on a super yacht on the south of France. So I don't think there's a fat lot of good in actually exploring that question because we're all products of where we've been in our frame of reference. And it's got me where I am today, albeit at a huge cost. But yeah, I probably, I probably won't explore that question almost because there's no point. It's wasted brain energy. So what is your high point of being in this wonderful industry? My wife staying with me. <laughs> That's the first time someone's ever answered it with their wife. As the My wife staying with me, without a doubt. But if, you know, the high points of the industry, for me, if today was my last day on earth and somebody said, you know, think only of house moving, only of house moving, it would probably be the great privilege I've had to have experienced all ends. Yeah. From doing furniture deliveries through to especially the work across France, Spain and Portugal. I mean, my God, I enjoyed that. And I think, God, what am I going to say next sounds really cheesy, but I think being taught to have the, the humility to realize that those individuals who actually move people your podcasts and, and all the talk of the future of the industry is always very management focused and it's always pissed me off <laughs> because the truth is that the high point is watching like you take uh, i'm going to name him anthony that works with me i'm going to say for me i'll say with me now anthony anthony came in at 16 years old no education and I don't think he'd mind if I said that to say he had rough edges was an understatement. And to watch that very, very young lad grow into a guy who has a greater understanding of human psychology and relationship building than many university graduates and and i would suggest possibly even those who have degrees in psychology themselves and to watch that young lad with no education develop into a guy with the type of mastery of the laws of physics that he does <laughs> and to watch that guy acquire the skills to keep calm the individuals around him who are up shit creek without a paddle at four o'clock on a Friday afternoon 
And and it's not to single him out as the only one on the team that I'm blessed to work with, but I think it shows he, he's a graphic illustration of what this job does to you. And I'm on about the yep. job, yep. the job. Yep. And he makes you, and I knew it before, but watching him has been a privilege. So so he's a high point because it, it highlights the, the stuff that the public don't realize. It highlights the stuff that our industry just does not talk about enough. And the high point is watching somebody develop these skills in an industry that most people regard as unskilled, yep. uneducated, yep. a hump it and dump it type of job. And if a certain individual on a stage today, a property industry, I describes it in that way again, I'm likely to go and punch him in his face. Um, and you suddenly realize that the nobility, the discipline, the integrity, the honesty, and the skill that comes from being an actual professional removalist. I'm not certain how many places you can go and be developed in such a rounded way uh, anywhere. And bearing in mind that all of these skills are acquired without ego. And I, I find it fascinating. I really, really do. You know, there are plenty of learned professionals out there who simply physically couldn't do what we do, who mentally don't have the capacity to learn the type of skills that we learn. And in this industry, and of course, you know, anybody that goes out to home surveying will know this, the ability to have the front door open to somebody and you don't know their psychological state, you don't know anything about them, you have no idea whether they're going to be pleased to see you or whether they're going to wish you didn't exist. And our boys on the front line that take this seriously as a profession, they can, if you heard that, that was the click of my fingers. Yep. That's how long it takes them to put this person at ease. That is a real skill. Oh, absolutely. And so I think, so you asked me what the highlight is. It's watching that. It is watching the development of people in this industry. And I consider that a huge, huge privilege. And, you know, I was saying it 15 years ago, there isn't enough recognition. And, I, and I'm happy to talk through the why that is, because I do have the answers for why that is. And it feeds into the question of why doesn't our industry have a loud enough voice? The answers are all intertwined. But that, that would be the highlight. He's not the only one, but he's, he's first come to mind right now. Sorry, the other highlight's the money. The money. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> well, we don't do this for free, do we? Well, I don't know. Some people seem to. <laughs> well, that ain't me. <laughs> oh, dear. So what one thing would you change within oh. the industry? How long you got, mate? I think I'm going to answer that by going back to that collective voice thing. I don't think the collective depth of education is there, ironically, on what we do. I don't mean the physical end. But I don't think we understand what it would take to be heard at any one moment in time in the country. There are only around about 20,000 households going through the horror end of the conveyancing process. And anybody listening is going to realize what that is. You know, it's that section of constant date changes. 
obviously that we don't even need to get into moving day itself everybody knows what a shit show that is but that period is only two to three weeks long so you work the maths back at, you know if you if you literally reverse the mathematics from an average of around a hundred thousand completions per month you've only got around 20,000 households who are stressed to the eyeballs with the last stages of the process that we're involved with. So it gives us a very limited pool of anger to seek attention from for our cause at any one moment in time. And of course, the other problem, as any movers listening to this will know, is that 2 p.m. in the afternoon, the customer can be wanting to set fire to every lawyer on the planet. <laughs> but the the sheer relief that they feel once they're moved in means they want to put it all behind them. So we never get the benefit of individuals who are truly active after the stress. But for us, the stress goes on. We get the same thing the next day and so on and so forth, whether it's the clients on the phone trying to get a date all the way through to completion day. So we're never going to get the backing of the public because they just don't exist. All of those members of the public who would actually want to get on board with the moving industry in great thanks for what we do and sing for what we want, they're never going to be there. So we need to give that up for a start. They're just not going to be there. So you come back to, okay, we need one collective voice. And I've often thought, We've all whined. I mean, God, I've whined more than most, but we've all whined about the key release situation. And it suddenly struck me that, hang on a minute, if the industry had a collective voice, now I'm not supposing for a minute this would ever happen, but I'll ask any listeners to suspend their disbelief and just run with me on this. Hypothetically, let's say that every single home mover in the country decided that they were going to down tools and go on strike for the last week of August. And we were going to tell every media outlet that this is our protest against the fact that we have been thoroughly royally shit on for decades and we've been forced to suffer. You do that once, the public are going to go barmy especially end of August. Now imagine if you did it at the last week of March, the last week of June, and the last week of September, which are the, as anybody who knows what house builders are up to every year and year out, that's when they target their completions. So just, again, suspension of disbelief, all of you. Just imagine if we did that. How long do you think it would take before government turned around and said, What's going on over there? Because I can tell you now, and I know from bitter first-hand experience, COVID, <laughs> that the house builders have got a direct line into government. Now, if all of a sudden there were no house movers to move anybody into these completions for the end of the financial quarter, and all those who were buying said, I'm sorry, but I can't, I can't buy the new house you know, in your financial quarter simply because I can't get physically moved. And if all of the estate agents whose bonuses are calculated and commission is calculated on the end of financial quarter, and again with the conveyances, the reaction would be monstrous. And we'd go in a flash from an industry with absolutely no voice to an industry that can simply get one problem solved, and I'll bet you it would be solved really quickly. So, you know, I'm not saying it because I ever expect it to happen. I'm saying it as an illustration that 
the home moving profession, industry, craft, however you want to describe it, all of us, collectively, we are important. Now, the size of what we do is only about 2 billion, I think, to the economy, which is just negligible. There is no financial argument for us meaning anything. But in this country, for decades, everybody knows that where houses and moving houses concerned, well, you know, you've only got to read the Daily Mail. They'll report an article on tiramisu from Sainsbury's and somehow squeeze house prices into it. So <laughs> everybody needs to realise that unless we come together as one, we're never going to get anything done. Now, I know that there are efforts right now, and I know Ian Studd's involved, and it's being sought that there should be a statute on 1pm key release. But no one knows whether anything's going to happen there or not. Uh, and of course, as listeners may or may not know, the Bank of England explored atomic settlement, which would in, in effect solve all the issues of funds transfer. And, and I don't know whether their date for implementation has changed. It was 2025. So, and I'm not in, as involved with the HSBG group anymore as I was. In fact, I'm not at all involved with it now, even though officially I'm still on it. And that, again, is because of other stuff going on and the way I feel about certain individuals that are on that group. But whilst the efforts are being made, we don't know if they'll come off or not. So again, I will, you know, I'll go off tangent here, but Colin, you know, all this talk on your podcast where you turn around and say, oh, good, you're doing key waivers and oh, good, you're doing this, that. I'm sorry, but I'm calling bullshit on all of that as well, because we don't operate any of that. But it will kill, it'll kill all of that stone dead. You know, key, key waivers will be gone. But that'll be a good thing anyway, because it will bring some integrity and decency back to the working hours that, that we're supposed to operate. But we could have forced that 10 years ago if the whole industry was one voice and the whole industry down tools, you, you get what you want in a flash. They would make the national news. Nobody can move house. On the first one, the Van Ayer firms will be rubbing their hands in glee, but the public will soon realise they can't do what we can do, and they certainly can't do it by one o'clock. So, you know, it, it disappoints me. You ask me what I'd change, it would be to make some sort of an effort to bring the entire industry together. No matter what I might think or not think about some of the types of operators who put those unbelievably stupid photos on Facebook of vehicles they've loaded, and it looks like they've drop kicked. You know, I was going to comment on one this morning and say, you know, that's great. Does it take a lot less time to drop kick everything onto the back of the van that actually isn't loaded? But, you know, either say something positive or don't say anything at all. So it doesn't matter what you think. We're all striving to do the same thing and you may as well align with everybody to get what you want because you're not going to delete the existence of all the people you don't like in the industry so you may as well try and get a collective voice for what we all need does that make sense absolutely a voice for what we all need then we can go off to a separate boxing ring for everything else but it's similar with the the time frame between exchange and completion you know you got you got professional firms out there who are so, so, I mean, that's why I get so ratty with this low loader argument. It's like those individuals who are out there and they're focusing on all this stuff that they don't need to put their efforts into. Again, as an industry, if it was mandated tomorrow that there was an absolute minimum period in between exchange and completion of, say, two weeks, then at one stroke, every company that operates in domestic moving will have a diary that they can look at for a full one month ahead, right? Minimum, minimum. Yeah. And you will know 
the workload for the next two weeks. You'll have a very good idea of the workload for the week after that and a half decent idea of the workload for the week after that. It would, in a stroke, revolutionize the staffing capabilities and the way in which we employ people. It would, at a stroke, remove a huge amount of stress from a great swathe of the industry. It would, at a stroke, solve a lot of the problems that other firms face. And I am thinking of other firms because I've developed a business model that gets around all this stuff. But those firms who get to the third week of December and the business owners are absolutely crapping themselves because they simply don't know what January is going to look like. That's done. Because you will have members of the public exchanging contracts in December for January. You will know what the workload is going to look like. You will know your quiet periods two to three weeks in advance. You can plan for them. Now, how you plan for them, I'm not getting into because I'll disagree with what a lot of the answers would be. But my point is that the surety and the knowledge of your business would be revolutionized overnight. Instead of all this crap with Mrs. Smith ringing up on Tuesday because her conveyance has told her they're now going to exchange contracts for Thursday. Those professional firms, and I really am emphasizing the word professional on this one, those firms that do operate deposit systems and even prepayment systems, their workload will increase because those customers that they lose and they do because the slightly crappy operator that went into quote after them has told them how they don't take deposits. They can do date changes as much as they want. And by the way, do you realize that you might only know the date you're moving two days before? They're not paying the deposits. They're not prepaying in advance because they don't want to risk losing the money. They might want to use that mover because they know that they're better. But the value gap between that professional mover against the 1,000, you know, I'm plucking a figure out of thin air a bit, but the, the 1,500, two grand difference of the lesser mover who does not operate the deposit scheme or prepayment it's worth the risk because they're then saying, well, I could lose 1,000, 1,500, whatever it is, versus get my dining table damaged. So it would, at a stroke, give the professional end of the industry an advantage, not a disadvantage. But here's the crux of it. By extension, it will actually benefit the lower end of the industry as well. Because those firms who we all decry because they won't operate proper contracts for employees and they don't run the business properly, the empathy that I mentioned earlier, it comes back to, and I know because I can remember being there. Who the hell is going to have the confidence to employ somebody on the type of contract that offers that individual a sense of dignity and worth, i.e., 35, 40, 45 hours a week, full-time, with all the benefits, if they don't know how much work they've got the week after next. Yeah, exactly. They're not going to do it. So again, it's one of those things where the way in which conveyancing is being run, which has only got worse in the last 10 years, is damaging the industry. And instead of us focusing on these things like these Three and a half ton versus HGV arguments. Oh, my God. <laughs> Could you boys make yourselves sound any more dumb? 
Start <laughs> focusing on the stuff that matters. And going back to that, what would you change in the industry? I'd implore everybody reading this, get educated, please. The stuff I read on social media, it's pretty clear, and I'm not saying this as an insult to any of you, you don't understand the system in which you're operating. And the problem is that when you talk about it online, when you express your opinions, your opinions end up being either invalid or just plain wrong, which then gives further license to those who are royally stitching us up to have an even deeper mistrust and disrespect of what we do. If you want to be taken seriously as an industry, we have to sound like we should be taken seriously as an industry. And if we're not doing that, we'll never be heard. So it all comes around to, it all comes around to that. We're all at the mercy of the same system. The system's pretty much stitching us all up. But because we're not one collective voice, because we don't have the intelligence and the intellect broadly across the industry to deal with it and bring ourselves together, we're never going to get anywhere. Not unless it's done for us. Maybe Ian Studd and Kate Faulkner are putting measures in place right now. And I apologize for not knowing. I've removed myself from that. But maybe they are, maybe they aren't. Maybe they'll run up against the same problems that I've already witnessed, which is those who hold the keys to that particular kingdom on a daily basis are completely resistant to any measure of change. That's certainly what I've witnessed. You know, and that's why, again, you know, I came back to that rather extreme example of us all going on strike. Because all of a sudden, you go over the top of the individuals who have the facility to say no, and you go to their masters who have been forcibly turned to attend to the problem, which you can imagine it. Last week of August, what's that? So if if you take the, just working on the averages, so you've probably got this year, what will there be? There'll probably be around about 80,000 completions in the month of August that we're concerned with as physical house movers. We all know that 30, 35,000 of those are going to go into the last week. That's a big fecking voice. Yeah. You'll have attention in no time at all. I'm not saying we can do it. We can't do it. And the reason we can't do it is because, again, the uneducated end of it would, would rather ignorantly go, oh, goody, I can sell my services for double the amount. <laughs> Yeah, I strongly suspect. You just know they would. You know they would. You know the more intelligent in the industry would look at it and go, actually, we're not going to lose a penny here because all of those moves will simply have to go to a different week. Yeah. And because the conveyancing industry is such a shit show, they won't all end up in the same week anyway. It'll all be spread out. So, and the first period of September is normally quieter. So we're just going to have an absolutely rammed beginning of September. But we'll have made a ton of noise and got heard. But no, you'll have Joe Bloggs and Sons with his couple of crappy 15-year-old vans will seek to make an extra 400 quid instead of seeing the big picture. Um, Yeah, that's my thoughts anyway. Very interesting, Matt. Very, very interesting. Now we need to get a collective voice together. Yeah, we do. We do. Do you think, though, that even though BAR are trying, they're trying to make changes, do you think, though, that BAR as a whole isn't big enough? The BAR is not big enough, and the BAR seems recently to be getting more popular amongst the industry. Yep. But when I, and granted it was years ago, but Steve Jordan very kindly shared 
with me the mailing list numbers for the Mover magazine. And um, this was before it was primarily digital. Yeah, my numbers are historic, but I see no reason why they should have changed too much. But so, I mean, the rough sort of figures were in the region of two and a half thousand movers in the UK, classed as proper house movers, and the BAR, I don't believe, aren't yet up to five hundred, even though the the KPI set down for uh, for that wonderful chap Stephen Vickers was to uh, get the figures to six fifty, but that was a long time ago. So, with BAR representing, irrespective of the number of moves it performs, yeah only representing 500 voices, it's going to be difficult. And even if you bring on Move Assured and AIM and, and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. And that's why I say the bar can't do it on its own. The bar's wonderful, but it's not having an effectual change. But part of that problem is because the BAR hasn't made sufficient strides towards public engagement with it. And I don't care what propaganda that's the wrong word propaganda comes out and i was saying it to ian over 10 years ago as somebody who has now performed more than thirty thousand in-home surveys and has had proper conversations with the overwhelming majority of those clients it's still a fraction fractional handful that knew about the BAR before I arrived. Yeah. So if you think about it, it's a sensible business economics. It's simply the case that if movers out there were constantly being told by the public, oh, but we want a bar member, they would have to go and sort their shit out and become a member of the BAR. I mean, that's, that's, just, that's just common sense. I mean, the BAR is selling a product, ultimately. Yeah. It might be a non-profit organization and all the rest of it, but ultimately it's selling a product and it has to have willing customers. Well, those willing customers can't arrive, one, unless they know you're there, and two, unless they want your product. Now, the bar's seemingly always gone down the route of saying, we're here and we're wonderful, and if you're a professional mover, you'll be with us. Well, I always argued that that was a very snotty approach. You know, you have to put the movers in the country who are not members of the BAR in a position where they can't afford not to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no point. There's no point in constantly having this attitude of, well, they have to want to be professional and they have to want to come on board. No, you have to force them. Because the, the intellect is not there across this industry. We're still a fairly young industry. We only really kicked in after the war. We're only on the third generation, really, of owners. And it began with low intellect stock. I'm sorry, but it did. It began with low intellect stock. Broadly speaking, the second generation weren't much better. A lot of the second generation are still hanging on. The third generation come in and, and you've got individuals that I've, you know, thinking of the most recent one, you know, like Dan Braddock and, and David Adam Chudley. And, and the third generation, which I guess I'm probably one of them, we're coming through, but there aren't that many that have the depth of knowledge of all facets that can really talk. But as I said, you know, this is one of the things that wrapped me off years ago. Whilst I'd like to know what Mr. Braddock and, and Adam Chudley possibly truly think when they're not being recorded, um, I strongly suspect that whilst being overwhelmingly positive, they would have things to say along the lines of, you know, why don't the public scream for a bar member because they don't 
And I've had the privilege, I work at all ends, 200,000 through to 8 million. I've seen it all ends of the spectrum for a very, very long period of time. And the bar has to put it in, a, in that position. And, and it's, I don't believe it. With, and I, I wrote a piece long ago suggesting what the levy should be on each bar member in order to do TV advertising. Um, and at the time, the board wouldn't even look at it. Mm. Why? Don't know. Don't know. Very strange. Don't know, because I'd pay it. I'd pay it. I mean, if you turn around to all the bar membership and said, look, we're going to do this format now, and we sincerely believe that, that by the end of the, this advertising campaign, customers are going to want a bar member, and you've got to pay an extra £1,000 a year for it. Yeah, fine, I'd do it. I'd do it if it was two grand. I'd do it if it was five, to be quite honest, because the return on investment would be just astronomical. Again, you talk about you know the industry moaning about being undercut. Why moan about being undercut? It's pointless. It's always going to happen. You're never going to eradicate it, not unless the industry was licensed and regulated you know, at government level, which, again, is never going to happen. Yeah. So why not instead engineer a situation from the BAR and have the BAR get it to the point that all the public simply will not employ a non-bar member? I know that's the extreme end, but you have to take it to the extreme in order to know the direction of travel that you wish to go in. And all of a sudden, you're in there, you know, those that moan about being undercut. And again, I don't give a toss about that, but those that moan about it will find themselves competing only with two other bar members. Fine, you've got what you want. Yeah, yeah. It just seems like much of our industry has it completely arse about face. <laughs> That's one way to put it. <laughs> you no, know, I, I don't get it. I don't get it. Again, I don't, I, I don't understand all this arguing with events that are outside of your control. It seems like a lot of effort for nothing. You may as well turn on the stuff that you can control or could certainly have an influence on. Well, let's see. What advice would you give yourself just starting out again? God's sake, don't do it. No, you already said that earlier. All right. So is this advice to the actual younger me? To you, the younger you. The younger you. Yeah, keep your mouth shut. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, dear. What advice would I give to the younger man? Probably it would be a case of understand the gravity of what you're getting into. Yeah. yeah. There's an awful lot to the industry, isn't there? There's a lot to learn. It's not literally about moving furniture. As you discovered when all of a sudden shit hit the fan, let's say, and you had to then get involved with the surveying side of it and running a business. Yeah, at 27, with no education of any value. I was drunk for my GCSEs. Um, I only lasted, what was it, six or eight weeks in sixth form college. I had nothing. So to anyone just starting out, improve your knowledge on the industry. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But where do we go to do that? Do we go to other companies and go and work for them for six to 12 months? The problem with where you're now going with this line of questioning is that you then need to get into what the future of the industry is. You've already touched on the issues that we have with getting employees and retention. And was it Dan Braddock that spoke about an aging workforce? I think it was, wasn't it? It was Braddock or Kessel, wasn't it? I think it was Ed. I think it might have been Ed. Was it? And we do have a problem. Yes. And that is because there is a lot more choice out there now for young 
anybody sub 30, there's a lot more choice. And who the hell wants to do a job where at three o'clock on a Friday afternoon, you have no idea what time you're getting home. And is that the real problem with people coming into the industry? Yeah, it is, Colin. It is. It's the fact that... It's not a nine-to-five job five days a week. Yeah, that, that, that's exactly what it is. It's how do you want people to react when they say, well, you know, I'm doing this firsthand. So this job now, and it was Dan Braddock, spoke about, you know, the job, you know, what is on offer now in terms of salaries and benefits and all the rest of it, it is quite good. It genuinely is. And the actual job is a lot of fun. But there does come a point. And when, when it's summer and it's the last week of July and you've got individuals who, it isn't just the finish time, by the way. I'll come back to what it's not. But, and they're, they're getting back at half seven at night on Monday, six on Tuesday, eight o'clock on Wednesday, five o'clock on Thursday. Friday, half seven, eight. But the problem isn't just the finish time. It's the fact that when our individuals are outside the new home at quarter past one, right? Now think about what they've done to get there. They have properly, carefully, and diligently and efficiently cleared four tons of furniture and personal effects from property number one in good time as per the law society's time for completion of one o'clock we do our bit and we do it well they then have to sit in the cab of a van for three hours how do you think that makes them feel i can tell you how it makes them feel because i've been there and i've done it and it makes you feel worthless like you are not of anybody's concern. Like your life doesn't matter. Your finish time doesn't matter. That you are simply not worthy of thought. And then at the end of that, you got to get out of that cab, go straight back to a quick pace with a smile on your face and look after that customer after You've had all of the coming down from the loading and then been made to feel completely flipping worthless. Do that day after day after day. Or for some of the new recruits now, do it for a week. Is that how long they're lasting? From what I read, that's the type of issue a lot of people have had. And yeah, I have burnt through one in a week recently. But I also have the likes of the aforementioned Anthony, who started in 2009 or 10, and Lee, who started around the same time, and so on and so forth. So, But we discuss this at length regularly at our place, and it's almost a form of counselling, and it's needed. Needed. I say that 110% sincere. It is counselling. Because it does make you feel totally worthless. But it's not the customer that's put you in this position. Correct. Correct. It is not the customer. But it doesn't change the fact that those individuals on that day, and of course the customer's not included in this, those individuals on that day who have it in their direct control to influence the outcome couldn't give a flying fig about you. And not only that, 
you can cope with somebody else not giving a toss about you. But what about when the effects of not giving a toss about you are at the material detriment to you, your home life, your family, possibly your kids? And again, I'll repeat, day after day after day. It's obscene, quite frankly. And I would urge all the movers listening to this to educate themselves. You know, and I won't give too much away about the way we handle this stuff, but I will simply say to you, go and learn how the Bank of England's CHAP system works. There is a video on the Bank of England website that you can start with. When you hear the words, oh, we're waiting for the bank, you can respond to your client in an educated fashion and say, no, you're not. That's absolute bunkum. The CHAP system is as close to real time as it's possible to get. It is virtually instant. Yes, you can have occasional situations with fraud checks and other bits of us, but broadly and in the absolute overwhelming majority, it is instant. What you are waiting for are the humans. You're waiting for the utterly stupid process where a conveyancing company has an accounts department on the south coast and your moves in Manchester. And do you think they'll ring each other? No. The funds have landed for your client's house at 11 o'clock in the morning and there are four separate individuals involved in chasing and clocking those funds, amending, deleting, blah, 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 as necessary, and then forwarding those funds on. And they're not ringing each other with any sense of haste. They are emailing each other. And that's just the firm solicitors acting for your client. You've then got exactly the same thing happening on the other side. So the funds transfer that takes 20 seconds, less than that, obviously, but let's just use 20 seconds. The process will recognize it and act upon it. That's two hours. Yeah. The problem is with the humans and the conveyances. Learn about it. Educate your clients. Why do you need to educate your clients? Because it will make your customers more ratty saying the right things to conveyances all across the country on the day of the move. Get some collective action going here. All of you out there, learn what you're talking about, rapidly educate your client on the day of the move, and then let's all get out there and thoroughly rack the conveyances off and let them realize. And I, there's a blog on our website for one particular instance where we had a client who was only second in the chain. And the crew were waiting until quarter past four. And um, I was involved on the phone with, with our boys. And um, they were in disbelief. The customer, the customer was thoroughly racked off, but wouldn't chase because they have that old thing about, you know, oh, not wanting to upset the lawyer. And when the lawyer rang at quarter past four, bearing in mind these boys have been there since midday because it was second in chain and we knew it shouldn't take long. She was pouring praise on her solicitor <laughs> so we, we i've written this one up into a blog and i've actually pointed out that what develops is virtually stockholm syndrome where the kidnapped end up falling in love with their captor because they go through this horrifically stressful process and then the one that brings the relief is the one that effing caused it you couldn't make it up. And then all the while, like I've already said, you have these poor individuals yeah. who absolutely nailed it in terms of service. They've nailed it. And then they're expected to sit 
for four hours being made to feel like they're just not of anybody's concern. It's not fair. It's never been fair, and it's not on. And unfortunately, it will continue. Well, it will, unless our end of it gets a collective voice, or unless the work that I believe is going on has an effect, or unless the Bank of England comes up with atomic settlement, which would see all transactions happen in a flash all at the same time on the day at a particular time. But there's no guarantees on any of this. This is why I think key waivers are a bit of a shit show, to be honest, because all key waivers and, and waiting time especially does is it punishes the client for something that's out of their control. Uh, true, true. But then at least the guys have been paid for sitting on their backside waiting because at the end of the day, they want to help the client. They want to get the client's goods back into that house and they want to get home. Well, employ them full time and pay them when there's no work. But most are still paid full time. So you could still have your key waiver. Nope. I don't buy it. I don't believe it because I've seen most of the contracts and I've seen most of the jobs that get advertised. I've seen plenty of individuals bark on about how they employ full-time staff, sit there in inverted commas. I can think of one individual who's... <laughs> got to be careful here. I can think of one individual who owned and sold his moving company who proudly told me that he operates full-time staff. And I said to him, because I, I thought I might learn something from him. <laughs> and I said, well, how do you do that? What terms do you run? And he said, well, they're all zero-hours contracts. I said, no, 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 you said that they're full-time. Well, yeah, they're contracted. But you just said it's zero hours. Yeah, zero hours is not full-time. And he go he went around telling everybody that his staff are all full-time and they're on zero-hours contracts. But he it's how he defines the words full-time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's my problem with this industry. There's so much bullshit. Mm. I want to come and do your job. Next time somebody makes a claim on one of your podcasts, I'll start digging on it. (laughs) It's finding out the right information and the right... And that's why I don't tell you how many people I employ and how many vehicles I run, because it's actually irrelevant. Well, it's nice for other people to listen and see that, oh, I'm of a similar size, and why aren't I doing this? Why yeah, am I doing that? You can have somebody running however many vehicles. They can own as many vehicles as they want, but they might not be doing many moves. You can have somebody who runs a fairly small outfit who's absolutely flat out and doing more work than an outfit that looks twice the size. Yeah. It, do- it doesn't reflect what people are doing. But then you can still be running a company turning a million pounds a year over but not making any profit. Oh, there's plenty of those. I mean, you've only got to think about when a certain firm up north went bust a few years ago and they've done something like 18 or 19 million quid in their last year of trading and made 200,000 pounds net profit. Oh, yes. But again, I get annoyed at the lack of profit. (sighs) Got to be careful here. So (laughs) we've done pretty well, but it doesn't stop me from being annoyed that our industry doesn't have better business models that provides for a better standard of living for people who work very, very hard. Yeah, yeah. Because it's always been something that, that's not. I, mean, you know, I can think of a mover who I greatly admire, and I do mean greatly admire, and he's no longer in the industry. He worked really hard for four decades. I mean, really hard. He was a guy I really, really look up to. And at the end of his career, he'd virtually nothing to show for it. That's not right. It's not right, but it does happen. Yeah. And unfortunately, it happens too much. That's the downside. It does. 
And that's why when I talk about, you know, wanting the industry to be better educated and when I talk about the intellectual level, it should never, ever be taken that I'm insulting people because I don't mean it that way. I mean it with frustration that we're all undervalued and we're not helping our own cause. Yeah. And again, that whole thing about bringing everybody together as one voice, yeah, yeah. those who realize they don't have the same level of education would naturally want to go and uplift and get up to that level. And again, those at the other end, the pompous twats, will probably have more of an understanding that they do need to have a greater level of empathy because everybody starts somewhere. And I can remember drawing money out of my personal account in an overdraft so I could pay somebody's wages. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure that happens to yeah. many people. I did it. Yeah. I did it. Running vehicles that are held together with string and duct tape pretty much. Mm. So let's look to the future then, Matt. Where do you see yourself and the industry in the next five years? Well, I've been a little bit of a failure for the last five years because I was concentrating on achieving certain financial metrics. I haven't grown the revenue of the company as much as I should have done. So I will either have caught up that point or I will have buggered off for good. Okay. And where do you see the industry then? I think a lot of it depends on, one, what happens with the efforts for a mandated key release time and or atomic settlement, and two, how the industry reacts to it. And of course, all of that sitting on a bed of what will happen next economically, because five years sounds a long time, but it's nothing. I think that if we do reach a correct level of reform in terms of key release and funds transfer, that it will give the industry an opportunity to give proper employment and proper dignity across the board to the individuals who affect the work. And it, I think it will become a much, much more attractive job, which would be great because there's a huge number of individuals out there who they don't want to work in a warehouse. They don't want to do a call center job. They don't want to sit at the same desk every day. They don't want to see the same thing every day and, and do a repetitive task every day. And who would love what we do? Because it, it, the banter, the different sites, the different challenges, there's enough to keep you mentally active and stimulated with a different thing each day. And But I do think that we have a huge, huge problem. One, with the image of the industry. And two, with those bloody working hours. Yeah. It's not attractive. It's just not. No, no, you're right. And it isn't, it isn't a money thing anymore. It's not. When I think about the salaries that we pay, they're, they're in excess of what the same individuals would earn anywhere else. And not all of them, but certainly at the level that we're talking about of individuals that, you know, when they first come in. Yeah. And it's just tough on them. They either click with it or they don't. But a lot of the time, the reason they don't is the uncertainty. And if somebody's previously worked fixed hours, and the missus knows what time they're going to be home. Yeah, yeah. And then all of a sudden they're going to a position where they're ringing the missus at half past four and going, I'm sorry, I know three hours ago I thought I'd be home at five, but now I'm going to be home at half seven. And it's a case of, well, we were going out tonight. Or even worse, you know, in our industry, you're thinking about that COVID boom where it was horrific. You've got lads with babies and toddlers and young children and they're missing the kids' bedtime. Yeah. And I go back to why. Why? Because conveyancers are broadly incompetent and who have no respect for the contracts they themselves implement. 
And they're supposed to be the professionals. Well, I was going to mention something about that. And I was going to point out that 25 years ago, when Dorothy and Keith from Acacia Avenue put their house up for sale, they knew, they knew that they'd be dealing with professionals in terms of the solicitor and the estate agent. And then at some point, they'd have to turn their attention to the, oh my God, we've got to get a moving company. Flipping heck, what's going to turn up? What are these blokes going to be like? And I've got a, I've got a number of questionnaires now that come back in from the public. And they've said the same thing. When we went into this process, we imagined that the rough and ready end of the industry would be yours. Little did we know, it was exactly the other way around. The unprofessional, uncaring end, where it feels like it's unskilled laborers, is actually at the conveyancing end. And And dealing with you guys, it's you that are the professionals. And I'm certain, I am absolutely certain that I'm not the only one who's had that feedback. In fact, thinking again of a previous podcast guest, I'm going to bet Derek Milner's had that feedback as well. Probably. I would have thought everybody would have had that feedback. Derek, I'm still sorry I nicked that van off you about 12, 13 years ago. <laughs> I was thinking about that the other day, Derek. I was wrong, and I apologise. <laughs> so when I asked what you were going to do in the next five years, yeah. you said either make up lost ground on, on revenues or be out of the industry. Do you really see yourself being out of the industry? I have other business interests. And at the end of that COVID period, I could have quite happily walked and never come back. Could you go out of removals but stay in the self-storage? Oh, God, no. Self-storage is so boring. (laughs) I mean, people talk about self-storage like it's the best thing ever. And if you've worked (laughs) in the moving industry, and you got anything about you at all, the thought of running a pure self... See, even these guys who've got really successful self-storage outfits who are in the moving industry, I'm going to willingly bet that none of them have sat in a self-storage front office for eight hours a day, five days a week, for a month, let alone any longer. <laughs> it is dull as dishwater. It is as exciting as porridge. so no is the honest answer no fair enough that answers that one that's that one settled it's if you're in the industry it's great to have storage facilities obviously the complement is there between the two but would i want to just run a storage oh god no god so what do you do to switch off then matt i get the impression you never switch off um Motor racing. Hang on. I'm supposed to answer this question with time with my wife and children. (laughs) I'll edit and put that first. (laughs) That's the right answer, isn't it? Time with the wife and children. (laughs) They are. My wife and kids are wonderful. No, no, really, they are. Motor racing. For me, it's cars. It always has. Anybody that knows me knows there's petrol flowing through my veins, not blood. Yeah, motor racing. Nothing else, just purely motor racing. Uh, well, to be honest with you, reading. I, I, I tend to read a lot. Okay, so I've got a motor racing question for you because I'm curious. Yeah. What's your favourite circuit that you've raced around? Anglesey. That's interesting. Anglesey because I think I'm the only driver in the 750s history who has 
won an endurance race outright in a non-Class A car. And Anglesey is really twisty, isn't it? Oh, yes. Yeah. Anglesey. Definitely Anglesey. Followed by Cadwell. Followed by Spa. I might ask you for some tips on Spa off the record, because I'm taking my car around there in November. Uh, well, the biggest tip is don't crash. Well, yeah. <laughs> I'm aware of that one. <laughs> like the other driver in the car I was in last year did on lap one there. But anyway. And finally, I'd like to end my podcast with a funny moving story. Do you have one or more to tell? There's probably none that I can air that much. Oh, I'm sure you can. I think probably. I don't know whether this one's funny as such, but thinking from the quotation side of it. So I turn up to this property on an evening appointment years and years ago. And um, I go in, obviously, through the front door, chatting with the lady. And then this guy comes down the stairs and he brushes straight past me and goes out the front door. And you think, (laughs) you ignorant twat. But you have to hide it. So we go through all the introduction and everything else. And, and then we start upstairs and we go to the May bedroom. And as we go in there, she frantically starts straightening the bed out. And <laughs> to, to, to be blunt about it, the air kind of smelled of sex. <laughs> and she's opened the window as well. And um, she, you can see she's a bit embarrassed. But to be honest with you, I just thought, well, you know, it's part of life, isn't it? You know, crack on. <laughs> so. We go around the property and um, we're in the kitchen and we're discussing the move and, and everything else. And then I heard the front door open. Husband comes in, but it's not the guy who came down. <laughs> and, and the thing that really frightened me was she didn't flinch. Really? She didn't bat an eyelid. She just carried on. <laughs> and the move came into store. And about three weeks after it came into storage, we had a solicitor's letter from his solicitor barring her from accessing the unit. No. Uh, which, was, which was interesting. Oh, my word. But, I mean, in terms of other stuff, I mean, I used to handle witness relocation, but I can't quite say which police area and department that was for. And um, it went on for quite a while. And we dealt with certain individuals into other parts of the country and even yeah. to Australia and, and, and all sorts of places. And then um, it had to be different crews and different vehicles. And sometimes we're even involved with load switching, you know, it literally in, in motorway services, we'd have to switch loads from one vehicle to another. Wow. We'd have to do all sorts of weird stuff. And sometimes crews would have armed guards going up the motorway and they wouldn't even know they'd got it. And we couldn't tell them. Oh my word. And um, one day we had a phone call and the guy effectively in charge of this, said, I need to come in and see you. We can't use you anymore. And I said, okay, come in. And he came in and he said, we get to great lengths to protect what we do. And you guys have been great. And we trust everything that you've done. But we have a slight problem. I said, what's that? He said, well, there's a flaw in our process. And it's you. It only recently came to light that you actually know where each witness has gone. Your staff don't. Oh, wow. And even the individuals in our own department don't, but you do. And it kind of, the blood drains out of your face because you realize the gravity of what he's telling you. Absolutely. And he said, we have to kill this and kill it now. 
your company and you cannot have any further involvement in this whatsoever. Oh, my word. Yeah, so that's an interesting one. Bloody hell. And it, and it's something I hadn't thought about. And clearly neither had they. I'd gone to great lengths to service what they wanted us to do extremely well. And I felt horrendous, you know. I mean, I remember having this vehicle go up the M6. And uh, the first thing we'd had to do was switch the load from the vehicle that it was loaded onto into an unmarked 20-foot box van. And it was something daft. It was like three in the morning. We had to go in in the dark to our premises, switch the load in the dark. So we parked the cars down the road. We've all walked in individually. We've switched these loads from one vehicle to the next. And then the crew had no idea that there were two vehicles with four armed officers in each vehicle following them at the motor. Wow. That was squeaky bum. Wow, wow, wow. Unbelievable. That was squeaky bum, that one was. I felt guilty for all of six minutes. (laughs) Only six. (laughs) Uh, um... Well, Matt, I appreciate you giving up your time today to record this episode with me. I really, really do. It's so good to see you again. Should I you any controversial comments on? At the moment, no. But we may have to get you back. You're welcome. I'll explain in a minute. Goodbye and thank you very much. I sincerely hope you enjoyed episode 73 of Moving Matters. Please rate, review and subscribe in your favourite podcast player of choice and please tell your industry colleagues about Moving Matters. My thanks and appreciation go to Matt Fazy of M&G Movers and Stories for giving up his time to record this episode. Thank you again, Matt, who would like to thank all listeners of this episode and give a big thank you for the team he works with for being awesome. If you would like to know more about M&G Movers and Storers and the services they provide, then you will find links in the show notes for this episode and on our webpage, movingmatterspodcast.co.uk. And please, if you have a funny moving story that could be relayed to our listeners or you would like to be a guest on the podcast, then do reach out to me by completing the contact form on our webpage, movingmatterspodcast.co.uk. Well, that is all from me. So until next time, keep moving.